You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. I, I mean, I don't know anything about football, so I feel like I have to kind of make that disclaimer right now. Don't know anything about football. I don't really have anything to add to the Lionesses playing in the World Cup this morning. Um, but I have learned a little bit this week about Serena Weissman. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, their coach. <coughs> she really sounds incredible. She was a manager of the Netherlands women's team. Um, and in 2017, she led them to a Euros victory. And then two years later, they were in the finals of the World Cup. Sadly, didn't win. Um, and then with her as England's coach, they've won an emphatic vid- victory in the Euros last summer. And, well, let's not count our chickens before they hatch, but we're in the final um, this summer, which I hear is quite a big deal, so that's great. Um, And it seems from what commentators and even some of the um, players themselves have said that Wagman has changed everything for them. Mary Earps, the goalkeeper for um, England and Manu, um, she shared in a documentary about the Euros after the Euros last year um, that Weigman not only changed her team's prospects, but she really changed Mary Earps' life. She was about to give up the game, and Weigman just turned that around. And I, I don't know if you've ever had an encounter like that or an experience with someone that's changed everything. I've had a handful of those moments, um, some really positive, some not so much. For example, um, the first time that I met a librarian was an amazing experience. The smell of the books, the stamp of, like, the bang of the stamp. I was like, that is what I'm going to be when I grow up. And sadly, that didn't happen, but it still left an impression on me. Um, On the other hand, when I was my swimming teacher, she had a bit of a dunk and shove method that definitely killed any desire that I might have had for swimming for the rest of my life. Um, But probably the most significant um, experience was when I was around 13. I'd grown up a Christian, I enjoyed Sunday school, um, and then I was 13, so in part of the youth, and we were trying out a new church, me and my family, and that morning, the youth were worshipping together and sharing the Lord's Supper, much like we've done this morning. Um, and the song that they were worshipping to, to was called Majesty by Delirious. If you don't know it, definitely look it up because it's um, excellent. And at the same time, they were showing a clip from a film that had just come out called The Passion of the Christ, which is an 18, so I'm not sure how they got away with showing it in a youth group. Um, but the whole thing, the whole experience really touched me profoundly projected onto the screen were these harrowing scenes of Jesus being crucified. And over these scenes of Jesus' sacrifice were those beautiful verses of worship. Here I am humbled by the love that you give, forgiven so that I can forgive. Here I stand knowing that I'm your desire, sanctified by glory and fire. And now I've found the greatest love of all is mine, Since you laid down your life, the greatest sacrifice. In that moment, I had an encounter with Jesus. I met him in a new way. I had the most incredible revelation that Jesus was actually real. That he really lived and that he really died. Not only died, but endured torture because he loves me. That he loves us. Despite all the things I do wrong all the ways that I continually fall short, 
he loves me so much that he would endure the crucifixion so that I could live fully and freely. And it wasn't that I literally saw Jesus. I believe I literally met with him in that moment. And it changed the landscape of my life going forwards. I wouldn't be in this city, in this church, in the family that I am in now if it weren't for that moment. I couldn't help but be moved by the revelation that if Jesus is real, then that changes everything. I'm not anyone special for having had that encounter. People have been meeting with God for centuries and often in far more exciting ways than mine. And if you're sitting here thinking, why haven't I had something like that? Or equally, if you're feeling a bit skeptical about it, I just really encourage you in the days and weeks to come to ask God to meet with you, to show him self to you and open your eyes and your ears and your heart to what he might want to show you it won't always look dramatic however one of the most exciting ones that I've remarkable encounters that I've heard of um, we read about in Isaiah 6 which we'll be looking at this morning Isaiah is best known as a Jewish prophet that prophesied that Jesus would come to redeem all of humanity around 700 years ahead of Jesus' coming. And as the, as the book of Isaiah starts out, Isaiah is accusing Jerusalem's leaders of rebellion, idolatry, and injustice. He declares that God's judgment, the consequence of this, is that other nations will invade. And like a purifying fire, everything that isn't of God will be burned away. Much will be destroyed, but this refining process will also usher in a new day, made up of those that have turned faithfully to God, and ultimately God's kingdom on earth will be fully established. It's at this point, after Isaiah has been sharing some of these prophetic insights, that we find what is known as Isaiah's commissioning. So do grab your Bible if you have it, or your phone, because we're going to I'd love to spend some time chewing, chewing it over together this morning. So Isaiah 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. It's really quite an epic encounter with God. It involves all of his senses. Isaiah not only sees the Lord, he hears the seraphim calling out to each other in worship. He feels the temple shake to its foundations. He smells the smoke that fills the building. He feels the burn of the coal on his lips. And there's all sorts of theological opinions as to whether Isaiah physically, literally saw God, or if this was a prophetic vision. 
but I'm not sure it really matters either way. He experienced God. He saw his beauty, his might, his glory. Isaiah's vision would have literally been filled with this vision of God. It's an immersive, all-consuming encounter. And he sees that God is alive. Unlike the king Uzziah, who is dead, the true king, God, is very much alive and firmly seated on his throne. And he sees that God is high and lifted up, that his throne is lofty, that spatial detail isn't a coincidence. It's highly significant because he is high and lifted up above everything else. Everything else is humbled, even the seraphim. This isn't a cozy, comfortable encounter with God. It's fairly intimidating. He is towering over Isaiah. And therefore, he sees that God is mighty and majestic. The train of his robe filled the temple. That's just the hem. I mean, that's Princess Diana's dress times a hundred, hundreds, I don't know. In Exodus, we read of Moses' encounters with God and how it was just too much for Moses to even see God's face. He's given a trailing glimpse of his back as he passes by, and that is overwhelming enough. And similarly here, Isaiah doesn't fully see God's face. He doesn't give us any description of it. He catches a glimpse, but the temple fills with smoke. His might and majesty is too much. And then we have the seraphim's posture. We think of the seraphim as angels because of the wings and they, they're crowded around the throne. Um, but really the word isn't used anywhere else in the Bible and it means the burning ones. So whatever these creatures are, they cover their eyes and their feet. It feels like a symbolic, metaphorical submitting to God, shielding their eyes from, their, from his glory because it is too much. And they call him the Lord of heaven's armies. The armies of heaven are submitted to him. This isn't just the four seraphim. It is a whole army that comes under his command. And most significantly, Isaiah sees that God is to be worshipped. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He's beyond any comparison to our human experience. He is holy. I think we often use the word holy to describe being morally good, but really it's far more rich than that. The Hebrew kadosh literally means set apart. He is completely and entirely unique. There is nothing like him. He's distinct, the only one. He alone is peerless. He is without rival. He is infinitely and eternally other. And yet, the whole earth is filled with his glory. His creation bears his signature. It is filled with his presence. It is a reflection of his glory. This worshipful declaration of his holiness and his glory signals that he is the one worthy of adoration, the only one. He is the Lord of all, and the whole earth reflects, reveals, resounds with this truth. God is alive. He is high and lifted up. He is majestic and mighty. He is worshipped. God's creation can't not be affected, be moved by his holiness. And as I've said, this vision of God is definitely one of the most remarkable encounters I've heard of. And around 700 years later, after Jesus comes, we 
find Saul, later known as Paul the Apostle, um, has another. He was a Jewish leader. He was zealously, violently defending his faith against what he believed to be the blasphemy and heresy of the gospel. In Acts 9, he is traveling to Damascus to arrest any followers of Jesus and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. So in Acts 9, verse 3, we pick up the story. As he was approaching Damascus on, his, on this mission, a light from heaven shone suddenly down, uh, suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Saul or Paul's encounter with God is less extraordinary than Isaiah's. It's more intimate. There isn't a lofty throne or burning beings or deafening worship. It's just him and a few other blokes on the road. He doesn't see Jesus, but he hears him. Jesus addresses him directly. It's a vastly different experience and perhaps vastly different to our own experiences of God, but the significance is the same. Jesus is alive. He is speaking to Saul. Jesus is high and lifted up. He's majestic and mighty. This bright light comes down from heaven. They're stopped in their tracks. Jesus is to be worshipped. There isn't any sung worship, but Saul falls to the ground. He addresses him as Lord, Master, or one with authority. There is reverence and an acknowledgement of worthiness. So while our own everyday experiences may not seem as exciting, they are just as significant. We can hear him speak when we spend time with him. Perhaps not always audibly, but perhaps through reading the scripture, through seeing pictures in our mind's eye, through senses in our spirit, through things that others might share with us. I find it much easier as well to hear him clearly when I'm spending time with him, pressing in into prayer, reading my Bible, waiting in his presence. It definitely opens my eyes and ears and heart to his nearness and his voice. And through that, we see and learn of his character, his holiness, his majesty and power. In reading about him, or perhaps when we experience or witness a healing, or when we remember his crucifixion in moments like sharing the Lord's Supper, and all of this surely leads to the conclusion that he is to be worshipped. Our God is alive. He speaks. He is holy. How could we not worship him? Because part of experiencing God and his holiness and realizing his holiness is realizing that we are not. We are not holy, kadosh, set apart in that same sense. Isaiah is made acutely unaware of his unholiness in that moment. It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Isaiah is terrified. He sees just how alive, how high and lifted up, how holy God is. 
and it reveals him and how unworthy he is of even being in his presence. The logical consequence would have to be death. It's all over. I am doomed. Now, I think there's a few important contextual things that really help to understand Isaiah's sense of unholiness in that moment. And just a note that when Isaiah refers to filthy lips, he's not talking about a potty mouth. He's, it's a symbol of his sin. So first, Isaiah spoke about holiness more than any other prophet in the Bible. A huge part of what he is called to is to call the nations, the world, to holiness. Assuming the early chapters of Isaiah follow on chronologically, at this point, he has already spoken quite a lot about holiness and the unholiness of the people, their sin, the corruption, the consequences and the judgment that this will bring and the need to turn back to God to return to holiness. So for Isaiah to exclaim about the filthy lips of his people isn't unusual, but to have a personal revelation of his sinfulness, his filthy lips, his unholiness, that is significant. It's like as he stands before God, there is a realization and an acknowledgement that first and foremost, he needs to address his own unholiness. He spent the first five chapters denouncing the sins of others. And this feels like a moment where he realizes that on the sliding scale of sin, it's all irrelevant because unholiness is a state that purely relates to God, not to others. And the second thing to note is that Isaiah has clearly made a link between this encounter and what is going on in the world at that point in time. He says, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. We read about King Uzziah's reign in 2 Chronicles 26 and 2 Kings 15. And as far as kings of Judah go, he was a pretty good one. He sought to follow God. He was militarily strong. But his downfall, in a nutshell, was pride. And you can read all about it, but essentially he became pretty famous. And some of that self-importance started to creep into his relationship with God and become a barrier. One day he goes into the sanctuary and burns incense, something that God has said only his priests that he's chosen can do. He seems to believe that he is too important for those rules, God's rules, to apply to him. So the priests confront him. They ask him to leave. And Isaiah's reaction is anger. The words that are used are fury and rage. In that moment, leprosy breaks out over Isaiah's face. And he's rushed out of the sanctuary pretty quickly, probably. And then he lives the rest of his days in isolation. He's ha he has to hand over the crown to his son, and he dies a lonely death. So the nation has quite publicly witnessed their king, who started out seeking to be right with God, seeking to be holy, allowing sinfulness to creep in, and then be punished in a humiliating and permanently debilitating way. When Isaiah says, it's all over, I am doomed, that is because in recent years, as a nation, they've literally watched their king's sinfulness become his doom. And this downfall of King Uzziah is in everyone's living memory has not changed anything for their own sinfulness. Isaiah says, I live among a people with filthy lips. And we read in the previous chapters that the nation is corrupt and rebellious. They've engaged in idolatry, they've worshipped other gods, they've put other things first. Injustice is rife, especially towards the poor. 
this encounter with God isn't an isolated experience for Isaiah. This is a revelation not just to him, but to the nation at a key juncture in their history. So Isaiah's vision of how holy God is exposes in him his own unholiness, his people's unholiness, and he is undone. The only thing that he can do is confess. And then as with Paul, as with Isaiah, Paul has a very physical revelation about his weakness and unworthiness. He falls to the ground. He is made low and humbled. He's also blinded. He becomes fully reliant on his companions to make his way to Damascus. He's led by the hand. And once there, for three days, he is unable to eat or drink. He is physically undone by the encounter. And his blindness, it's like a metaphorical for, metaphor for the spiritual blindness that he has been in all this time, of zealously trying to uphold his faith, but in the process persecuting God himself. I can definitely relate to how hard it is to be in that place. There have been many, many times where I have experienced God and been deeply aware of how unholy, unworthy I am as a result. That person I might have hurt might pop into my head. I might get a flashback of a moment where I've sinned. I might just feel profoundly fragile in my humanness, really weak. And sometimes, rather than turning to God, confessing or declaring him to be Lord over my life, I've sought to hide away, to avoid church, to skip out on any personal time with him, to not go forward for prayer, or ask someone else. I forget that we are made, I am made in the image and likeness of God, in the image and likeness of his holiness. And he is passionate about redeeming us and calling us back to being holy. I forget that through, though hiding from him is probably, feels more uncomfortable and easier, more comfortable and easier. Turning to him and being met by his redemptive, unconditional love is far better. It's therefore no surprise that the story doesn't end there for Isaiah because he has faced God in that. He isn't struck down. He doesn't meet his doom. He says, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Even though he's unworthy, here he stands in God's presence, the holy one's presence. I think human examples pale in comparison, but it's a bit like um, a scene in Les Mis, if you're familiar with it. Jean Valjean, a fugitive, turns up at a bishop's door. Um, he asks for a place to stay, and the bishop lets him in and feeds him and gives him a bed to stay in. But in the middle of the night, Valjean grabs all the silverware and runs off, and he's later found by the police, and the police find the silver, bring him back to the bishop to face him. And rather than the punishment that Valjean deserves, the bishop tells the police that he had given the silverware as a gift to Valjean and that actually he'd forgotten the candlesticks too, so here they are. In Victor Hugo's original novel, the bishop says to Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. And that scene from Les Mis is just a human taster, a tiny glimpse of what it might have been like for Isaiah with God. God not only welcomes Isaiah and allows him to stand in his presence, but then he also makes provision for, God's, for Isaiah's unholiness. He makes a way for him to be holy and to be redeemed. 
from verse 6. Then the one of then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Altars are where sacrifices are offered for sin. And Isaiah, in his sinfulness, turns to God, declares that he is unworthy. He is met with atonement, the nullifying of that sin that is obstructing his relationship with God. And again, that isn't a comfortable process. It's a burning coal. It's had to be picked up with a pair of tongs, and it's touched to Isaiah's lips. Just like the purifying fire in Isaiah's prophecies, that which isn't of God will be burned away. And similarly, God does not leave Saul blind and broken. He sends one of his believers, Ananias, um, to Saul. And now Ananias knows Saul's reputation. And he's, well, to, be, to say that he's reluctant is an understatement. Um, but God commands him to go. And in Acts 9, verse 15, the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. It's not as obvious a repentance and redemption moment as Isaiah's. Isaiah clearly declared his sin. The seraphim clearly declared Isaiah forgiven. But something happens in Ananias' laying on of hands beyond just physical healing. The physical healing is almost an outward sign of an inward change. There's an instant heart shift. He regains his sight, and then he gets up and he's baptized. Saul has let go of the old. The stuff that was getting in the way of his relationship with God has fallen away with the scales. He immediately takes that step to be baptized and be made right with Jesus. He goes from being unholy, being apart from God, to stepping into what God has for him, to being of God. For us, we may not have such a clear, tangible moment of being declared forgiven, we might not experience a dramatic healing. But ultimately, that work, that moment of forgiveness, of reconciliation has already been done. God sent his son Jesus to die on the altar as a sacrifice for our sin and failing. He had created us to be of him, to be in relationship with him, to be holy And where there are obstacles in the way of that, God has already made a way to clear them. At the crucifixion, Jesus took on our sinfulness, our unholiness, our brokenness. And then just like the burning coal, all the obstacles of sin and brokenness were burned away. The scales fell away. God makes that provision for us, a way for us to return to being holy, to being of him. In those moments of realization of his holiness and our unholiness, he longs for those moments to draw us nearer to him rather than away, to draw us into being of him. And to be of him is to do his work. After this vision, revelation, and redemption, Isaiah says, 
And then I heard the Lord ask, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. It's from that place, a vision of God, a revelation of God's holiness, a realization of unworthiness and redemption that Isaiah is called and sent out. Isaiah is changed by this encounter with God and it leads him into deeper obedience. Here I am, send me. And similarly, is from that place of revelation and redemption that Paul steps into his calling. Afterward, he... This is in verse 19. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the Son of God. He immediately starts sharing about Jesus. We are all called to do his work, to do the stuff, to share good news of his redemption, of the hope that we have to live well and to love well. And note that both of these men of God, they're redeemed and healed before they do any of the stuff. They don't earn their redemption or their healing by working for it or earning it through works. In fact, prior to this moment, Saul has tried that. He's zealously tried to earn his redemption and his holiness through works. And he's hugely misguided in how he does that and instead works against God himself. They have a revelation of God and are redeemed by him. And then they are called and sent out. And I think the order of that is deliberate. First and foremost, we have to be fueled and envisioned by who God is to have a revelation of him and his redemption. Spending time with him, worshipping, praying, reading his word, filling our vision with him regularly is so important because doing his work isn't always easy. We live in a fallen world, and there's a battle going on. God tells Isaiah up front that this is going to be hard in verse 9. God said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people, plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth of remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as the terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. The people are spiritually dull and deaf. They have hard hearts. It's pretty much a point of no return. And yet God calls Isaiah to bring this message of repentance and hope. This call to be holy, to inspire holiness in an unholy world is difficult, nearly impossible. But there's that seed of hope. As a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. A stump where the tree once stood remains. The roots remain. It's intact. It hasn't been totally uprooted. And later in Isaiah 11, we read that there will then be a shoot from that stump, Jesus. The great tree might be felled, 
but a shoot will emerge. There is always hope. Similarly, Saul's calling isn't for the faint-hearted. When he's talking, when God's talking to I- to Ananias, he says, "Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel." And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul knows well what persecution is facing him. He's been an active part of it. Putting the apostles on trial, publicly beating them. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that Paul was probably a member of, at one point calls for the apostles to be executed. And it's the Roman law that prevents it. That just shows where what their heart is for, for these people. Paul was present for and approved of the stoning of Stephen. He himself went from house to house, dragging Christians off to prison. That is the whole reason why he's traveling to Damascus in the first place. So he knows what he's up, up against. And we might not face the same hardness of hearts that Isaiah did or the same level of persecution that Paul did. That isn't to say that we won't. Christians around the world definitely do. And that isn't to say that following Jesus now in our context is easy either. He calls us to share the good news in a dark world. To love him and to love his people, all his people, with all we have. And that is often messy, uncomfortable and complicated. To speak universal truths in a culture where everyone is encouraged to live out their own truth to pray for people or partner with the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in a world where proven logic and cynicism are the norm, to love people, imperfect people, putting others' needs ahead of our own in a civilization geared towards independence and individualism. Jesus said to his followers in John 16, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Doing what he calls us to do isn't easy. There will be many hard hearts, many criticizers, many trials, many sorrows, but we need to take heart. We need to allow our vision of God to be filled, to really allow ourselves to know him, his realness, his majesty and might, his holiness. We need to allow ourselves to be redeemed, to be changed by him. Jesus has overcome the world. Anything standing in the way between us and God, sin, weakness, unholiness, it's all been burned away. It's fallen away with the scales. Jesus took it all on so that we can stand before God, blameless and holy. He has overcome the world. So we can take heart, we can gather up our strength, be healed up, and step out into all that he has for us. I feel that for some of us this morning, there's just a desperation for God to fill our vision. We desperately need to just meet him and to know more of him. And for some others of us, we might have turned away from him. Even perhaps this morning, there have been moments where you have chosen out. It's been easier and more comfortable to be distracted or to... Avoid pressing into his presence and allowing him to see us, our hurt and our brokenness. And then there'll be some of us still who can feel his calling over our lives, perhaps in a more general sense or maybe 
over something specific and we need to take heart to be strengthened and steadied for the task ahead. So I want to land with this this morning and perhaps let's just stand and you might want to close your eyes <coughs> as we stand and reflect and pray. I want to land with this question this morning. Have you seen the Lord? Do you see the Lord? Do you need him to fill your vision? Do you need to turn your vision back towards him? What is he saying to you? Let's just wait and allow him to fill our vision. We just invite the Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you've been with us this morning and that your presence was tangible during worship. But that there's so much more. There's so much more of you that we can see, that we can receive. So come, Holy Spirit. We ask for more. I think there's, um, there's something significant when you step forward for prayer, not that there's anything special about coming to the front or the sides, but that it reveals your heart posture of I want in, I want to, I'm turning towards you, I want to see more of you. So if you're feeling stirred this morning, or even if you're you're not, feeling stirred but you want to be you want to have that you want to encounter God I would love for you to to stand to step out in that yeah and I think there's a number of things that the Lord is doing this morning I think for some of us 
Um, we're hearing Isaiah's and Paul's story of how they encountered God. And we're wondering, why, why haven't we had something like that? Um, and it says in Hebrews that, um, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God is our rewarder, and if we earnestly seek him in faith, we can find him. Um, he's not holding out. He's here for us to receive. I think there's an encouragement for people today that just want more of God, you just want more of Jesus, that he's here and you can receive more of him, that he rewards your seeking. And I think for others of us, um, we may have had a moment of just realisation of our sinfulness, like Isaiah did. But the amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't leave us there. We can run straight into his arms. We can receive his forgiveness. We can trust the cross. And that may be for the first time. That may be for the thousandth time. God makes us holy. He consecrates us as we come to him. And for others, I think there's a purpose moment here. Like Isaiah was sent and commissioned. Paul was sent and commissioned. I think maybe some here in the room that just wondering what your purpose is. But the Lord sends us for his kingdom. He sends us for the people of the world. He sends us for the lost, the needy, the broken. He sends us for our neighborhood, our workplaces. I just think this is a moment um, as we reflect on Jesus. As we receive him afresh, he wants to send you. He wants you to know that you're a sent person. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.